Shalom, and welcome to A Voice Calling in the Wilderness, a trumpet call, a voice crying out loud for God to those that would hear, so that they would run to Him, that they might be warned. We are here sounding the alarm that our time here on earth is short, and that we have no time to waste. We will expose the truth, teach the word, discuss the dangers, lies, and enemies we are surrounded by, and how to engage in the war that we are standing in the middle of. Today we are talking with our friend Pastor Gary Durham in a continued discussion on sin and salvation. Welcome to the show, Pastor Durham. It's great to be back again. We've had two great discussion times on soteriology and homartiology. Yeah, it's been fun. Yes. So for the last couple of weeks, we've really been discussing, the bulk of our time has been discussing sin and its origins. And today I would like to discuss God's reaction to sin. Mm-hmm. So we talked a little bit about this, but I wanted to go back and reiterate just for a second. Could you help us understand the twofold nature of sin? Yeah, we started off, uh, we did uh, kind of touch on the fact that sin is twofold in its nature. The Bible makes it clear that sin is not just things we do that are contrary to God's law, that displeases the heart of God. We all have done that, and that's called sins. We refer to them in the plural, uh, and we commit those uh, when we go contrary to God's design and God's law. But the Bible makes it clear that we're all born as sinners, not because we've committed a sin in the mother, in our mother's womb or anything of that nature, but because we're born with a nature, a state, an alienation from God, which has caused our nature to turn inward. We have a nature which I call a self-sovereignty nature. It's a self-autonomous nature. It is self-centered to a large degree, and we attempt to be self-sufficient. And that nature is called the old life, the old self, and it is the sinful self, the sinful nature. The flesh is the sarx is the Greek word, but that word is not used to refer to the body. It's referred to uh, usually in Paul's writings in particular. It refers to that nature that puts the flesh first and is concerned only about fleshly things and earthly things and things that we want. So sin is twofold in that it's a state, a condition that uh, we desperately need help and and rescue from, and it's the acts of sin that come out of that nature because that's what we are. All right, very good. So God, being who he is, understood that we were going to sin, that we will sin, and that there will be separation between us and himself. And so he had to come up with a plan in the beginning to react to sin. Yes. And we know that reaction to sin as his plan of salvation. Mm-hmm. So what is the plan of salvation? Okay, let me address something as a kind of a ramp up to that, because you said that God knew that man was going to sin, and that brings up the question of what? Foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we are also told in Revelation that Christ was slain before the creation or the foundations of the world. Therefore, God must have known that that sacrifice was going to be needed. So, yes, God had foreknowledge, and he could see that it was going to happen, which tells us something about the fact that he gave men free moral agency and made him morally responsible so he could be love-capable, which we've talked a lot about, mm-hmm. so he could reflect the Imago day, which we can't do without being love-capable and have a certain limit or a certain amount of moral freedom. But it also tells us that God's foreknowledge is not necessarily predestination. There's a di- distinction between foreknowledge and predestination. God did not predestine man to fall. 
unfortunately, there have been theologians who have said, even Don Calvin, as great a theologian as he was, said that God ordained man to fall and uh, predestined him to fall, but that man fell by his own, and man was responsible for his own fall, which, of course, he's really saying nothing because that's contradictory and it makes no sense. Uh, and even he recognized that later. But the point is, is that foreknowledge and predestination are not the same thing. And if once we get that straight, then we understand that God's plan of salvation was something he foresaw would be needed. Predestination is something that God can do. He does predestine many things because uh, he is sovereign, but he doesn't predestine everything. That's because his divine plan, and he works out everything in accordance with his own sovereign will. But his sovereign will is that there should be a world of meaning and purpose and freedom and love capable creatures. And therefore, to work it out in accordance with his sovereign will so that everything works out perfectly, he's not going to predestine everything. So to start with, we would say that salvation was foreseen as needed, and God's plan was to answer the need because he wanted to bring us back into fellowship with himself. Salvation is reconciliation. It is to bring man back into relationship, because when that relationship is severed, man dies. You may recall that in the garden, God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of the free, uh, you know, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day you will die, die is what the Hebrew says. It uses the word die twice. Mm -hmm. We translate it usually as an emphatic, surely die. But it's not really what it is. It's a technical word. God is saying, you will, through death, know ongoing death. And the result is, is that Adam did die immediately, not physically. He died immediately spiritually. He was severed from his relationship with God uh, immediately, and immediately other kinds of death start working on him. Psychological death, sociological death, governmental death is an inability to govern his own life and the world around him. And then ultimately physical death, the separation of the spirit from the body. And then there is, of course, eternal death or what the Bible calls the second death for those who are never reconciled to God. But uh, death does not mean to cease to exist. It means to be severed from the source of life. So the point of salvation is to reconcile us to God. And so it has to, salvation has to address several issues. It has to address our sins, the things that we have done that have made us a rebel and a traitor to God. And it must address the nature of sin, which has, which causes us to be hostile toward God. Paul says in Romans 8 that the sinful nature, the fleshly nature is hostile to God. It cannot submit to his God's, it doesn't submit to God's law and nor can it do so. So there's something has to be done about it, obviously. So if sin was twofold in nature, then is salvation also twofold in nature? Very definitely. God's not going to give a half solution uh, to the problem. So uh, maybe we should kind of uh, approach it in this way. Uh, we know that God not only addresses our sins, he, he has in Christ, we have been forgiven because Christ died on the cross and paid for our sins. And now the reason that Jesus can do that, I've had people say, well, why does the death of a man 2,000 years ago do anything for me today? Well, you got to understand who the man was. If the man was only a man, quite frankly, it doesn't do anything for you because, you know, people have been dying for thousands of years. But if that man was God incarnate, 
therefore he's fully human, but he's without sin, and therefore he's qualified to pay because he's human, because a human has to pay, but he's also the eternal God who's worth the whole creation. Therefore, he's equal to every human being that's ever been born or ever will be born. Therefore, he could pay for all creation and every person. So therefore, when Jesus dies, literally we have a sacrifice that is adequate for the whole world. God was in, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. And there, that's another place where Jesus is referred to as God. God was in Christ because Christ is God, and he was reconciling the world to himself. So that reconciliation is how we know we have forgiveness of sins because Jesus died to pay for them all. But then in salvation, there is a lot of ink spilled in the Scripture about the importance of us dying to what we were and coming alive to that. In fact, Jesus made that a central plank in his whole definition of what a disciple is. He does not say, come and be forgiven. When he calls people to discipleship, he says, come and die. Come and die to the life you presently have and come alive to a new life. You know, he says, anyone who wants to come after me must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And then he says, anyone who tries to keep their old self, their old way of living, is going to lose it because you, they can't save themselves. But anyone who gives that life up for me will save it. And so, in other words, I'm going to redeem it. And then he said, what would it profit a person if they gained the whole world but yet lost their very self? So salvation uh, started out in Jesus' definition as not come and be forgiven, which obviously we are, and the Bible testifies to that over and over, but come and die to what you are and deal with the deepest problem and come alive as a new creation. When you take up your cross daily and follow Jesus, you'll follow him to Golgotha, where he died on that cross, and then you follow him as Paul will, and we'll talk about that as we move on into Romans 6, 7, and 8 in a moment. He, he actually... Uh, you know, we die to our old life and then we are united with him in that and then we actually are buried to that old life and then we are resurrected to live a new kind of life. So yes, salvation takes care of both. And probably the best way to really highlight that would be to talk a little bit about 7 and 8 if you want to, J.D. Yeah, no, I think this is the, exactly the spot that I wanted to do that. And we need to talk about the difference between Romans 7 and 8 as well. Okay. There's a lot of discussion among theologians, and I've been in on many of those discussions in many a university classroom and then also, uh, you know, exchange of papers and those kinds of things about what is the spiritual condition of the person in Romans 7. And that's what we have to resolve first. And once we do, then we can begin to understand what Paul's talking about, and then it makes perfect sense when we move into chapter 8 what he's talking about. Because there's really an applicability there, right? Yes. We are talking about people really that are under the law mm-hmm. in the beginning. Right. And then we move into people that are under Christ and faith. Right. And so I'd really like to try to get those that comparison of how Paul talks about the difference between the mm-hmm. two and how we transitioned. Well, one of the cues for us to remember is Paul's a very systematic thinker. 
uh, in many, many ways, is that he's just brought us through Romans 6. And Romans 6 is about everything that God, Christ has provided for us through his death. He's provided not only for our forgiveness, but he's desi- provided for us to die to our old self. Our old self was crucified with him. Therefore, we should no longer live in sin because we're no longer a slave to sin because we're under grace. And so when you get that context, and then he talks about how, you know, because, you know, we have our fruit at the end of Romans 6, he says, we have our fruit unto holiness because of what Christ has done for us. And the result of that is eternal life. So he's saying that something, you know, grace produces in us, the work of Jesus produces in us, actually an ability to live a life that God would call holy because of its mm-hmm. intention to please him. It's not because of perfect performance. We don't have that yet. But that that results in eternal life. Now, I don't going to capitalize on that, but that that's the context. Then we go into Romans 7, and that's the context we got to remember that we interpreted in. Yeah, I've always seen Romans 6 as being this is the act of the salvation act. This is all the things that happened that got us to where we're at. Yeah, and you're right about that. Romans 6 actually is saying this is everything that Jesus did for you, and you need to appropriate it. If you believe for your salvation, if you believe for your forgiveness, then of course you've appropriated that. You become a new creation in Christ. But you also need to believe, as Paul said in verse 11 of 6, reckon yourself, which is a counting term, write it down in your account book because it's a reality that you are dead to the sin, the nature, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So he's saying you also need to bring that online by faith. So in the same way you know, Jesus died for you 2,000 years ago, but it didn't do you any good till you believed it and accepted it and trusted it, and their sins got forgiven. In the same way, you don't get death to self-sovereignty and free from your old self until you believe that Jesus provided for that too and begin to appropriate by faith through the help of the Holy Spirit and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And that's a good point because that answers one of the questions that was submitted to me is, if Christ died and paid for all everybody's sins, then why do I need to do anything? Yeah. <laughs> well, he did pay for everybody's sins, but then he made it very clear, it's only those who put their trust, their faith in me that get the benefit. And that's a very important point. Uh, and uh, a pardon's not a pardon unless it's received. And we have to receive God's pardon. He won't force it on us. He's paid for everybody. In fact, he couldn't help but pay for everybody if he died for it because he's infinite. And if he's infinite, the, he's overpaid. And I think you demonstrated that well. I heard you talk once about a judge who had given a pardon to someone and they wouldn't accept it. Yeah, actually, it's an old story. It goes back into the 1800s. It actually went to the, all the way to the, uh, um, the U.S. Supreme Court. But there was a man who had committed some very violent crimes. He was condemned to be hung. Back, that's back when they were still hanging people. Uh, he was very bitter and very angry about life in general. But he had a brother who was very wealthy and influential. The brother said, I'm getting you a pardon. And he went to the governor of the state and secured a pardon and got back just in time before they were ready to hang him the day before and handed the guy the pardon and said, I've got you a pardon. You can go free. And the man in his anger and, and confusion about life said, I don't want a pardon. And he took the pardon and tore it up and threw it in the floor. Now the authorities had a dilemma on their hands. We have a man the governor has pardoned. He, the, the governor says he can go free, but he tore up the pardon and didn't receive it. So what do we do? Do we let him go or do we hang him? And so this went through several courts. It ended up in the Supreme Court of the United States. 
the verdict of the Supreme Court was this. A pardon is not a pardon unless it is accepted as such. And the point of and they learned that from Judeo-Christian ethics and Judeo-Christian understanding, because back then uh, our judicial system was totally based upon the laws of God and nature and nature's God in the Bible. And so uh, they and they would basically refer to the Bible and say, yes, that's that's true. So what did they do? They hung him because he had rejected the pardon. And that's that's U.S. history. <laughs> now, we learned that from God because God says, you, you, you know, you snub your nose at God and say, I don't care that Jesus died for me. And you're not getting the benefit. I was going to say, it sounds exactly like what the Bible tells us. Yes. <laughs> I mean, clearly ex- tells accept it or perish. Exactly. Now, let's go, as you go back to Romans 7 in the context of 6, that God has provided everything for us in Christ, and by faith we can activate it and actualize it into our lives, we need to look at 7 in that sense. Now, instead of trying to cover the whole of 7, uh, which is, just takes too long. Let's go all the way down to verse 14. And I would just say to the listeners, if you're a good Bible student, unless you have this passage memorized, why don't you go grab a Bible? And you can grab any version. The one I'm reading may not match the one you're reading, but the, the words will be very similar. Uh, but I'm going to start at verse 14, and it says this. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. And by the way, let me remind you, the word sin is singular here. And in the original Greek, there's always the particular article. We often remove it because we don't talk that way in English. But here, it really carries great weight. It means the sin, the sin nature. And so he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. And then he says this in verse 17, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin, would be with the Greek, living in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my fleshly sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, and then he's going to restate what he said in 17 in verse 20. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. He, so then he says this. This is his conclusion concepts. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members or within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's his little summation statement. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, as it should be, of course, but in my sinful nature, or fleshly sinful nature would be the better translation, a slave to the law of sin. Now, let's analyze this and let's go back through it. Mm-hmm. First of all, we need to ask ourselves this question. What is the condition of the man in Romans 7? Some have argued this is a totally unconverted person who's struggling with, uh, you know, 
the law and their uh, inability to keep it. And, of course, that's, that obviously could be true. Some say this is a Pharisee who's struggling with Phariseeism, and they take that and say, well, this was Paul's previous to his salvation, and so on and so forth. But there are some key statements in this that do not add up unless we understand this man has already encountered conversion. And let me show you why. He says this. Um, he, of course, he's obviously talking about the fact, I want to do the good, but I can't. Okay, so I'm trying real hard, but I can't do it. And I don't want to do the evil, but I find myself doing it. So he's talking about this form of bondage, this form of slavery. But then in verse 17, he says, it is, as it is, it is no longer I. Now, if I said to you, J.D., I am no longer a drug addict, what would you assume from that statement? Previously, you had been. Yeah. I couldn't make that statement unless I had previously been a drug addict. And I can't make that statement because I've never been a drug addict. So I could not say, it is no, I am no longer a drug addict. Paul says, it is no longer I. The only reason he can make that statement, because there was a time in his life when he could say, it was I. I was in rebellion against God. I was purposely doing the wrong things. I was following my own desires, doing my own will. So clearly, there's been a change of some kind. So yeah. what kind of change changes a person from wanting to follow their own way to saying, I want to do it God's way? To me, he's speaking to the internal battle after you've made the decision to follow Christ, because that old sin nature still fights to keep a hold of you. But then now you're fighting a new fight yeah. because you do desire to do things God's way. Right. And we're going to say, and I think that we can bear this out a little further as we go further down. Uh, verse 20, he's going to repeat that same thing as you notice. Mm -hmm. uh, it's no longer I who do it. It's the sin living in me. And when he talks about the sin living in me, he says, it's, that's what's responsible, this this conflict, this warfare between myself and what I desire and what this sin nature is inclining me to do and making me a slave to do. We got a real battle going on here. The, the correlation chapter passage for this would be Galatians chapter 5, and that the fleshly sinful nature wars against the spirit, capital mm. S would be the right translation, and the spirit wars against the fleshly sinful nature. So you find yourself unable to do the things you want to do. And, and then in that chapter, it goes on to say, well, let's identify what comes out of the sinful nature. Then you get that horrible list, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. of adultery, fornication, unclean, you know. And then it says, let's identify what comes out of the spirit who, if he's living in you, and that's the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, you know, so on. And then it says in verse 24, those who belong to Christ have crucified this fleshly sinful nature with its passions and desires. So they don't follow that anymore. They are following the spirit and his nature, and that's the nature of Christ. So, but let's look down here now, because this is where Paul really gives us his analysis, beginning with verse 21. He starts talking about law, and people totally misunderstand this passage because he talks about law in more than one way. Laws are not only like commands of God, they are also the word law means a regulative principle. Let's talk about like gravity as a regulative principle. If I take my Bible and hold it out here in the air, I have to exert energy to overcome the law of attraction between the mass of the Bible and the mass called the earth. Mm -hmm. That's called the law of gravity. And the law of gravity is an operative principle that operates 100% of the time. And that's why we call it a law. If I turn loose of the Bible, I know what's going to happen because there's a law. 
it's going to fall to the ground, okay? So we understand that some of these uses of the word law are operative principles, and he does refer to God's law. But let's look at this. So I find this law at work. So I'm finding something operative going on here. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. So he says, now that's operationally what's going on in my life. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Let's pause right there. In my inner being. What could he possibly be referring to in my inner being? Well, a Jew never referred to his inner being as anything but his spirit. So he's saying in my spirit, I delight in God's law. What would make a person in spirit delight in God's law? Well, I only know one change that would make them delight in God's law. They've been born again because the spirits come to life and delights in God's law. Sinners don't delight in God's law. This man's delighting in it. You say, well, he's just a really good person. No, 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 no. (laughs) You don't delight in God's law unless the Holy Spirit has done a renovation in your life. And his spirit has been brought to life. So he says, I, in my inner spirit, my inner being, I'm delighting in God's law. Another way to look at this, too, is that the Jews referred to human nature, and they used the tabernacle, or I should say the in the temple in, their, in Paul's day, as a symbol of human nature. You had the outer court, which was like the body, which was exposed to the external world and the outer sunshine. You had the inner court, the holy place, which was uh, the place where the priests did all of their service before God. And that was like the soul of man, self-conscious things were going on there. That's, and that's where our self-consciousness resides, our will, and so on, and, and everything. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctuary, which was only uh, the, the Spirit. It was the Spirit of man, and that's where the Shekinah of God's glory dwelt, and Spirit communes with spirit. In fact, you remember when Paul talks about the witness of the Holy Spirit in Mm -hmm. Romans 8, he says the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit. Spirit. So it's spirit to spirit. So, and that's why the Shekinah dwelt only in the Holy of Holies, because it represented man's spirit. So the the tabernacle represented many things, but it represented the nature of man's spirit, soul, body. And, uh, And so Paul, when he talks about in my innermost being, he's referring to the Holy of Holies. He's saying, in my innermost spirit, I'm delighting in God's law. So the only change that makes a person do that is to be born again. Mm-hmm. So he, then he goes on to say this, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and make me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So he talks about three kinds of laws here. This other law is an operative principle that's working And what it's doing, it's waging war against the law of its mind, which would be another way of saying my will, okay, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. And the law of sin, the Bible teaches us, is operative in the world, and because we're in the world, it operates in us because there's an affinity in us to it, which gives it access. And so he's saying this law of sin is at work inside of me, and he says, Uh, what a wretched man I am. So he doesn't cry out, oh, glorious state. You know, some people say, well, this is the normal Christian life. We all have to live this way and just, uh, you know, just ask God forgive you every night because you blew it. Uh, That's not really true Christian victory. He says, this is wretched. And then he says, who can rescue me from this body of death? And I think last time I gave the illustration at the end of the broadcast about that this was a metaphor. 
body of death was the reference to being punished for murder by the Romans by being chained and mm-hmm. bound to a decaying body. Right. And the, it became an expression that everyone recognized. It meant I've got such a problem, it's killing me, and I can't get rid of it. I'm chained to it. And so Paul uses that term, and they understood what he's saying. He's saying, this sin nature is so bad, and it's, he's saying it's doing so much to me. If I don't get rid of it, it's going to get rid of me. And I think today that you find a lot of people, even people within the church that are in this position, yes, that they recognize this verse because this is where they live their life right now. Yeah, and they shouldn't because Paul doesn't say, oh, glorious state, park here and hang on for heaven. What he does say, it cry does is cry out for deliverance. Mm-hmm. Who can deliver me? Then he answers his own question. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there is deliverance from being in this kind of situation. Uh, now, now the question comes up. So we're not talking about deliverance from sins. This person obviously has been born again, and but we're talking about deliverance from the power of sin, which is trying to drag me back into obedience to this power of sin in the world that he's saying is operating inside of me. So he then gives this conclusion. So then I myself and my mind am a slave to God's law. That's something it should be. We should all be a slave to God's law in our mind. In other words, we represent, we, we recognize it is the perfect law of God. It, it tells us what holiness looks like, why it's, how beautiful God is. And it also shows us what we ought to be but are not. And then he says, but in my fleshly sinful nature, this nature you know, that lives inside me, the sin that is in me. It's no longer I, but it's the sin living in me. That's what he's referring to here. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So he's saying there's a nature in me that's actually a slave to a law out here in the world that is the law of sin. And what is the law of sin? It's something that draws you always to sin, and it takes hold of something in us. Now, I'm going to illustrate this, and this is a visual illustration I use with my students in classrooms, and I've done it even in preaching. Everybody out there, hope you got a great imagination, because you're going to need to imagine (laughs) this. But suppose I take my Bible and let it represent an object, you know, okay, let's use gravity also. But let's let uh, uh, just take a book, say, for example, and a dictionary. Let's use that. If I take a dictionary... Uh, I usually use my Bible because it's handy because I usually always have a Bible with me when I'm teaching. But anyway, so I take a dictionary and I hold it out here and the law of gravity is pulling on it. Okay, so we'll let this dictionary represent the sin that lives in me, that dwells in me, and that is a slave to the law of sin in the world. That's what he's referring to. Mm-hmm. But in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin that's operative in the world. And so, and in this fallen condition. So he says, this power of sin is pulling, so you know, on this, like gravity pulls on this dictionary, so to speak. Right. And, it's, and so if I become a believer, when, and when I become a believer, I'm born again, and I'm given new life. And that's what he's describing. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. I'm alive and delighting in God's law. It's no longer I. But it once was I, but it's no longer I, but it's the sin living in me doing this. There's a warfare going on here. Mm-hmm. And then he, he, he basically uh, says, you know, what happens is when you become a believer, you lift up the dictionary. You say, I'm no longer going to let this dictionary fall. I'm going to overcome the law of gravity. I don't want to give in to sin anymore. And every believer has to have that commitment. Mm-hmm. We should. 
But if we don't know how to appropriate the disconnect between our old sinful self and get it crucified, it still responds to that law of sin in the world. And if we don't understand Christ provided for that and we don't actualize it and bring it online, we're going to struggle, struggle, struggle because the attraction still happens. That's what I was going to say is like, this is where many Christians get stuck. Yes. As they try to do this on their own, they try to hold that, that dictionary up mm-hmm. on their own and not ask God to help them hold it up. Well, here's the point. Let's go a little further. I always say to my students, okay, students, how long can I hold this dictionary out here? Now, they begin to think about that. I say, well, it only weighs a few ounces. It only weighs maybe a pound. No big deal. You know, uh, I can hold it, but I'm holding it out to the side, horizontal. But I said, you know, it's interesting. Since I've started this illustration, this dictionary feels heavier than it used to. I know it hasn't gotten heavier. I ain't got enough scientific knowledge to know it's not heavier. But why does it feel heavier? Well, the life in me is being dissipated, fighting that law. And while this life in me can just keep going and going to some degree, at some point, what's going to win, the law or my arm? Well, it's pretty clear. And they all go, well, the law, the law. Why? Because it's relentless. It never stops. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like the believer saying, I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to give in to that power. I'm not going to sin. I'm not going to give. And he may mean every word of it. That's a noble idea. It's a noble idea. And it's exactly what we should be doing. But if he doesn't know how that's done, and that's what Paul's going to address in Romans 8, mm-hmm. if you don't know how that's done, then you're... You're fighting a losing battle. You may say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to. And all of a sudden, boom, you drop the dictionary. Why? Well, you wanted to do the good. You're trying to get it up here, but you can't. And you don't want to do the evil, which is the, symbolized by dropping it to the floor, but you do. Because you can't fails. hold it anymore. Yep. And then what do you do? Well, you know what everybody does. They grab the dictionary. I'm not going to let that happen again. I'm going to prove to God mm-hmm. that I can. And what are we doing? We're starting to act like a Pharisee. And we start to another little track to despair. Because now that we're saved, we're trying to prove to God that we can overcome the power of sin. We couldn't overcome our sins. And we can't overcome the power of sin on our own. We have to have the work of Christ. And we have to appropriate it and actualize it into our lives. So, Romans 8 has a wonderful word, (laughs) and it says this, therefore. Now, this particular word in the Greek is only used five times in all the New Testament. We have many therefore English words. There are several words that are translated therefore from the Greek, but this one is very special. It, It means, therefore, based on what we have just concluded, this is what we should now conclude. Very powerful word. So, Therefore, we've come to a logical, clearly uh, necessary conclusion. So that's what this word means. Mm -hmm. And he says this, there is now, right now in the present, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And some uh, of the manuscripts add who do not live according to their sinful nature, fleshly sinful nature, but according to the spirit right there. Now. When he says no condemnation, he's not, people always say, well, sure, my sins have been forgiven. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the condemnation that comes from being a slave to the power of sin. And he's saying that condemnation is removed. You don't live in this up and down struggle, struggle, struggle. I can't do it. I want to do it, but I can't <laughs> thing. He's saying, no, that condemnation now is gone away for those who don't live according to their sinful nature. 
but they're living according to the spirit. And then he gives us a because. And I always love it when the Bible gives me causes, <laughs> because now I know what's going to happen here. Because through or in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit. Oh, now we got a new law. What law? The law of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. His nature is like a law. The law of the spirit who gives me life has set me free, set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, the Mosaic law, was powerless to do because it was weakened by my fleshly sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned the sin in the flesh, in man, in order that the righteous requirements of the law, the Mosaic law, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the fleshly sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Now, Paul said a mouthful down through there, but here's, here's the because. Because there is a law, the law of the spirit of life, and he says that law sets me free from the law of sin and death. Now, let's go back to our little gravity illustration, see if we can make some use out of it. Let's just say, I often say to my students, let's suppose now that we're in science class. And behind the podium here, I have some balloons. And I take out one of the balloons. It's not blown up. And I hold it out here, and I, you know, just hold it out like this, and then I turn it loose. What happens, class? And it'll go, well, it falls to the floor. And I say, okay, then I ask you, why did it fall to the floor? And somebody goes, uh, gravity, gravity. Okay, you get an A. Okay, a, gravity. Great, you're right. That's true. Now, I'm going to take another balloon behind the desk. The other one's still lying there. I take another balloon. And what do I do? Well, I fill it full of helium and I tie it off. And then I hold it over the top of the other balloon, just above it, a few feet. And I say, now, class, watch. And I turn it loose. But now, what does it do? It goes up to the roof. And I say, okay, class, why did this balloon go up? And let's say somebody raised their hand and goes, well, there's no more gravity there. And I go, you flunk. <laughs> no, because look, the other balloon is still on the floor right under it. Mm -hmm. So that's clearly not the case. So why did it go up? Well, the answer is called the law of buoyancy. And the law of buoyancy says there's a new law inside this balloon now because I filled it with something lighter than the atmosphere. The atmosphere pushes down on the, toward the earth, and lighter objects are pushed to the surface, and helium is lighter. Therefore, it's pushed upward toward the surface of the atmosphere, and it takes the balloon with it because it's not very heavy. Okay, So as a result of this new law operating, the law of buoyancy, the balloon is set free from the law of gravity controlling it at that moment. In other words, it's able to rise instead of fall. And so that now that's a very loose illustration, and, and we must be careful with illustrations because uh, they only illustrate. They don't prove anything, okay? They just illustrate, but they can help us. And Paul says that the law of the spirit of life sets me free, in other words, uh, keeps me from being controlled by this law of sin and death that's an operative in the world, this law of sin that works through my sinful nature. And he says, uh, and then he says, for what the law, the, the Mosaic law was powerless to do because it depended on me to do it. And I was a sinner and couldn't do that uh, because it was weakened by my flesh, my fallenness. 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So what's he saying? Christ did it for you. Mm-hmm. He took care of it. He not only paid for your sins, he was a sin offering to deal with the power of sin and to put it to death. And then he says, and so he condemned the sin. That's what the Greek says. He condemned the power of sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. Isn't that an interesting statement? Most people don't like to hear that. But we are called to be able to meet the righteous requirements of the law fully because we don't live according to our own strength and our own power, or or we're not living according to the sinful nature. We are living according to the nature of the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. So, and then that's where he would go on to talk about those who live according to their sinful nature, have their mindset on what the fleshly, sinful nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindsets on what the Spirit desires. And uh, we don't have time to unpack that part. In fact, I'm going to be preaching a little bit on that this week as I'm going to be talking about the importance at the end of the age of Christians getting the right mindset. Because if we don't have the right mindset, we're not going to endure to the end to be saved. And uh, that's important. But what we can see here, here's where we go back to your original question, J.D. Is salvation twofold mm-hmm. in its nature? Yeah. It, it deals with our guilt before God. It deals with our sinfulness. It gets us reconciled to God. It gets us justified. That's all in what it means to be born again, regenerated, brought to life. But then it also, when I, by faith, begin to say, yeah, and Christ also put me to death, and he also buried me, and he also resurrected me to be a new kind of person. When I bring that online by faith through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, and it takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit because God doesn't sanctify us in the dark. He needs to illuminate us, and we have to say yes to him and allow him because there are things in us. There's an old self that we must say, yes, you can kill it. There's an old lifestyle with its own desires. I have to say, yes, Lord, that goes. Your desires take over. And that's kind of like a second crisis for most Christians because only a believer can be illuminated by the Holy Spirit to know, to begin to see this inner, deeper work. It's a mm. progressive work. It's something that goes on. Uh, progressively, but there can be a crisis moment when people suddenly wake up and go, oh, I see I'm much more self-centered. I'm much more self-autonomous. I'm much more trying to be self-sufficient. I'm trying to do this on my own. And then they suddenly see through the work of the Holy Spirit, wow, Christ did this for me. And by faith, they receive it. And then I reckon myself dead to the sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, wow, there is a moment of just increased freedom. It doesn't mean that something that wasn't in the atonement, was added on extra. No, it was already there. But just like the same way you actualized it when you believed and got saved, you actualize this when you believe for your freedom. Absolutely. And in just like in any relationship, the longer you work on the relationship, the more you invest in the relationship, then the more you get out of the relationship. Yes. Yes. Salvation is twofold in its nature. It deals with our sins and it deals with what we are and transforms us into new creations in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And that was Paul saying, I used to look at everybody and go, yeah, they won't amount to a hill of beans uh, because he was a Pharisee. It judged everybody. You know, he says, I don't judge people by the flesh any longer because I now realize that if they're in Christ, wow, he can do something great with them. And that's where that verse comes. If they're in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone away. The new has come, and they're made brand new in Christ. 
So that brings us up to a, a very important question. And maybe this is for some of us that are out there that, that believe that they've already gone through this process. But really, this is for those that could be listening that really don't know a relationship with God. How do I receive this gift of salvation? Well, first of all, we are said in the scriptures to be saved by faith. And faith, the word faith there, in fact, you could you do very well. I think Dallas Willard said it well when he said in his book on uh, life without lack, he said that we should always probably just translate every place where pistos in the Greek is there, not faith into our vernacular today, but trust. So those who put their trust in Jesus and what he did for them and really believe it and depend on it will be saved. You know, and uh, of course, Paul put it this way, in, uh, as you know, in Romans 10, he says, if a person will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they shall be saved. And that means delivered from sin. And the... Now, it is interesting, there's a word picture here that most moderns miss completely. Because Paul was talking about making a covenant with God. Mm -hmm. How did they make their covenants in ancient times? Mostly verbally. There was rituals they actually walked through. They'd cut animals, walk between the pieces, all kinds of things. But we <laughs> can't get into that. But the point is, is that they, they made verbal vows, and they did this before witnesses. So Paul was saying, if a person will confess with his mouth, that Jesus is Lord. The, the term that Paul had in mind was Adonai, and Adonai was used to replace the word Yahweh for the Hebrew. So he's saying, if you'll confess that Jesus is God in the flesh, that's what he's really saying. So as a result, he's talking about like standing up in front of a court and going, I vow this. I vow that I believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's a covenant thing. I'm making a covenant vow. Then he says, and then you believe. So it's a, it's something that's involving the total person in your heart, your innermost person. You believe that God raised him from the dead. In other words, he really is God. He really overcame sin and the power of sin. Then you shall be saved. For it's with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with the mouth that you confess and are saved. So when you believe you're justified, you're made as if you'd never sinned. You're just as if you we're always in right relationship with God, and then you're saved from the power of sin by your confession in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, that's how you appropriate it. But you have to make that covenant of, I'm going to trust you. It's not saying, I believe some data about Jesus. A lot of people believe the data, but they don't trust him. You could say, I believe Jesus is God. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe all those things. But then you could also say in your heart, but I'm not going to trust him because I have my own plans for my own life. Well, you'll never be a Christian until you change that attitude because you have to repent. Jesus said, except you repent, change your mind, turn around, go in the other direction, you, you're going to be lost. You're going to perish. So you touched on this just a little bit, I think, a few minutes ago, but I wanted to ask it and make sure that we get a good full answer out of this. Is, is salvation a process or a one-time event? <laughs> Both. Uh, there is no way you can say it's one or the other. Of course, it has to begin as an event because you have to be born again, and being born again, and it's like you know physical birth. It happens in a moment. But... Physical birth, you are not alive because you simply were born. You're alive because you continued to live and you continued to be fed and you continued to grow and all those things. So it's, that's a process that followed the event. 
And so salvation is both. And this is why, for example, in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, we all love verse 28, for God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Oh, don't we love that? But then we stop right in the middle of that sentence because it is one sentence. And he says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, what's, what's being predestined here? Salvation? No. What's being predestined is freedom and transformation so that you're conformed to the image of Christ. That's sanctification, as we call it in theology, and the scriptures use that word as well. And so what he's saying is this. If you are in Christ Jesus, and he, it says, for those God foreknew, remember foreknowledge is not predestination. It And predestination is not foreknowledge necessarily. Predestination can lead to foreknowledge because if God predestines something, of course, he knows it's going to happen. But foreknowledge doesn't mean he had to predestine it. I think one of the best illustrations is this. Suppose that you and I are on a mountain watching uh, a valley and we can see, let's say, 50 miles of this valley. And suddenly we realize we see two speeding trains on one track. One's coming from the north, one's coming from the south, and they're going about 80 miles an hour toward each other. And we're looking at this and going, whoa, somebody made a mistake. We got two speeding trains headed toward each other. There's going to be a big crash. Now, we have foreknowledge of about of what's about to happen. Do we have any causal relationship to that? Absolutely none. We can't do anything to stop it. We can't do anything to cause it. We have what in philosophy we call this, we have uh, epistemic knowledge. In other words, we have actual knowledge. We can see what's about to happen, but we don't have causative knowledge. We don't have causal knowledge. We can't, our knowledge isn't causing anything to happen. Mm -hmm. And so we see this terrible crash. Did we cause it? No. Now, God God not only can predestine certain things, which of course, if he does, he knows it's going to happen because he's got the power to do that. But on the other hand, he also has what we call foreknowledge that is not predeterminative because he observes us doing certain things. So God, who is in all of time, because he is, we were told that he's the one who dwells in eternity, and in eternity he has access to every day of your life, every from every bit of time, from the beginning of time to the end of time. It's all, God never loses any of his existence. We get it all a second at a time, and we lose second A when we get second B, and we lose second B when we get second C. But the point is God doesn't live like that. He doesn't get his life meted out to him in little seconds. Uh, God possesses all of his existence all the time, and that's a, that's a mode of existence we can't comprehend. But the point is he sees every day of your life. So he knows tomorrow what I'm going to do. And he can know that either by predestining it, which he certainly has the power to do and the right to do, or he can know it because he observes me doing it. And he could back here a week before tell me you're going to do such and such on such and such a day because he's observed that I did it. And it's not because he's predestining that I do it. He's just saying, I'm telling you, this is what you're going to do. And because I saw you do it. (laughs) And this is what he could say. So God here in this passage says, those he foreknew, he predestined. It's interesting that John Calvin said God never predestines based on foreknowledge. Well, Paul must have got it wrong here because he said those he foreknew based on his foreknowledge, he predestined 
what? He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So what's he saying? He's saying the moment that you, the event of being saved happens, you are put into, you are predestined to be put into a sanctifying conformity to Jesus Christ. And so it's both an event, a crisis, uh, and then it's a process that follows that. And if you say, I don't want to be in the sanctifying process, I don't want to conform to Jesus, well, then the event never happened. Because if you are a true Christian, you want to be like Jesus because a new life is in you and a new desire is in you, and uh, you have new purpose and new love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing to add to that. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that. Well, but, so when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, mm-hmm. and he said, we must be born of water and spirit. Yes. What did that mean? It was in response to Nicodemus's. Uh, misunderstanding when Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can an old man be put back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Mm -hmm. And Jesus basically was saying, if I can vernacularize his response, no, 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 Nicodemus, you misunderstand. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. And that's what he'll say after that. But he says, you know, you must be born of the water and the spirit. The water there, some people refer to that as baptism. Uh, that is not what Jesus had in mind because it's not in the context. Jesus is saying you, it, you'd have to add it into the context, and it's just simply not there. He's saying, Nicodemus, you're misunderstanding. And when he said born of the water, that was a Jewish way of referring to physical birth. Because what happens when the child's ready to come into the world? The mother's water breaks, as we say. And when that water gushes forth and the child comes out of the womb, and sometimes it happened with it, if uh, in the, actually it was almost simultaneously. The point is, is that you're born of water. That was their term for physical birth. And Jesus says, no, you must be born of, you must have physical birth. Sure, Nicodemus, but I'm not talking about that. You must have spiritual birth because flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. And so that's what he's referring to. Great. Thanks for clearing that up because I got a lot of questions on that one. Yeah. And I think that uh, we can probably blame Dallas for that because of this new Chosen series. <laughs> yeah. So another question that a lot of people ask is, what are the signs of salvation? The signs of salvation. Well, th- there are many signs of salvation. We must understand that the Bible makes it clear there will be evidence of your salvation. Uh, James, of course, is notorious for, for making faith uh, is proven by the good works that come from it because you can't be saved without good works. And some people say, well, James is talking about a work salvation. No, he isn't. He's talking about the fact that genuine faith always produces good works. And if you don't have good works, then obviously you don't have saving faith. Therefore, you're not saved because you don't have those good works. Paul says you're saved by faith alone, but there he's talking about justification only, and he makes it clear, though, the very next verse, if you're talking about Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, in verse 10, he says, and God has laid out ahead of time all these good works for us to do because we're God's poema, his workmanship, you know, his, his craftsmanship so that we can do good works. So he's saying the same thing. You got, you're saved by faith alone, but that faith will produce good works. And so... And if you look at the life of Paul, if you thought somebody could get to heaven by good works, you'd probably pick Paul above anybody else. He, but even he said he could not get there that way. But the point is, is that uh, his life shows that he believed that a 
living faith produces good works. James, that's the only point he's making. There were people saying, well, I have faith. I mean, it's not showing up in my life, but I've got faith. And James is saying, you show me your faith by what you do. Because if you've got real faith, it'll produce good works. People try to turn that around and make James into somebody who's saying you're saved by good works. That is absolutely not what he's saying. He makes it very clear that uh, it is, he's talking about the nature of the faith. And, and he does that by saying this, you believe there's one God. Well, you do very well. Big deal. Uh, so do the demons. They believe that and they shudder. It doesn't save them. He's saying you've got to have a kind of faith that makes a difference. And if it makes a difference, then we know it's genuine. Absolutely. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we talked about today is the importance of being connected to a body and to have a church body or a believing body and how that, that assists us in maintaining our Christian walk and helping us to overcome and defeat different sins to support us. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we should agree that uh, we hope we'll just kind of touch on this because this could be a whole broadcast yeah, as you know right but the truth is is that in the western culture we are way too individualistic uh biblical uh the biblical concept of man is very social uh in fact this goes very deep in fact uh, many cultures would even uh punish children for the sins of their parents even israel did that you remember that god had to change that in ezekiel 18 where he said, uh, no longer are you going to say that the father has eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are on edge. He says, no longer will a child die for his father's sins or the father's sins be visited upon the child. And, uh, and then he goes on to talk about if a wicked man repents, he'll live. And then he goes on to say, but if a, sin, uh, a righteous man turns from his righteousness and does wickedness, he'll die. And then he says, that's the only just way. And he says, if a righteous man has a son who does wickedness, will he live because of his father's righteousness? He says, no, he will die for his own sins. And then he says, but if he has a son and he does righteously, he'll live for his righteousness. So the point is, is that he's saying it's all, we're all responsible. But the context that, uh, of, the, of this is understanding that we're very uh, socially interactive, and we need to be, and we're called the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. Literally, we are the fleshly, physical manifestation of Jesus on this earth. We all have the same Holy Spirit in us. He draws us together, and he designs bodies on this, uh, the body of Christ on this earth, to create the things that God wants to do on this earth and to carry those out. This is why Christians in should be a part of a covenant-committed body of people who commit to doing kingdom work together. And it's clear from like uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, but particularly 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is talking about the fact not everybody has all the gifts. Uh, you know, the Holy Spirit determines who gets what gift. He, he gives them according to each one as he determines, he says in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 12. And, uh, and the point is, is that then he gives the body illustration, you know, the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. And the <laughs> hand can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Right. Because, you know, he's saying, where would the body be if the whole body was an eye? Where would the, the functions of the body be? Obviously, you can't have an eyeball rolling down the sidewalk. You've got to have the whole body to have a functional body. And he, says, and he said, each one of you are part of the body, but you're not the whole of the body. And so it's by this in what connects us. It is love. It is commitment to Jesus Christ. It's commitment to a common cause. We are 
first committed to him in love. We are transformed. We're given the same spirit, and then we have a common cause. We work to bring the kingdom of God to earth, and that can only happen in a body because Jesus says no Lone Rangers in the Christian, no Rambos in the church (laughs) because you are saved by uh, grace, but then that grace will call you into fellowship. In fact, Jesus goes further and makes it clear that when you do something to the least of your brothers and sisters, you're doing it for, to me. And remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus and Jesus knocked him to the ground with a, a bright light? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Well, who was Saul persecuting? Christians. He was throwing him in prison and killed Stephen with, you know, having him stoned. He was the one in authority that they laid their coats at his feet for justification. Uh, and, and Jesus took it very personally. He said, what you're doing to the Christian, you're doing to me. And Jesus made it very clear when you've done it to the least, one of the least of these, Matthew chapter 25, you've done it unto me. So the righteous make it into heaven because they've done all these wonderful things out of their faith for others. And Jesus said, when you did it to them, you did it for me. And then the evil, the wicked, do not make it into heaven because he says, when you had opportunity to do things, you didn't do them mm. because, and therefore, you didn't do it for me. So clearly, the body of Christ is more than just an idea. It's something literally the Holy Spirit fills the pain of each believer, and we are to help and to build each other up, to strengthen each other, to encourage each other, to uh, counsel each other, to instruct each other. And that's part of the privilege. You give other believers the privilege of, of actually correcting you and directing you. Uh, and there are some who are to be teachers or called for that purpose, but they their call is not to lord it over, but to serve the other believers so that they equip them. For example, as a pastor, I'm not supposed to be running all the touchdowns, so to speak. I'm supposed to be equipping the team to run all the touchdowns and celebrating when they do, uh, because I am there to equip the saints, Ephesians 4, uh, so that they can do the work of the ministry and build up the body of Christ. Something that's always stuck with me is the story of the cord of three strands. Yes. It's not easily broken. Yes. And so I've taken that pretty much to heart that when I have other believers in my life that are helping stand me up, then I'm not as weak as I once was. No. And when I do stumble or I do bend my knee, then they can grab me and lift me up and help me. Right. And I think uh, this comes down to one of the virtues that the Bible talks about. And that's the, the idea that in Christ we develop the virtue of humility. Now, years ago, and I don't know how much time we have, have left today, but uh, uh, years ago I was asked to speak at a conference, and they assigned the topics. <laughs> and they wanted me to speak on what is humility. And they made it very clear, not just what are the characteristics of humility. We know that humility will do certain things, and it won't do certain things. You know, humility won't brag about itself. Humility, you know— We'll celebrate other people and so on and so forth. But what is humility in essence? And so because we're commanded to be humble and how can we fulfill that command unless we know what it is and to ch- how can we choose it? So I did started taking the Bible apart on that one for several weeks uh, to speak on that topic. And uh, I boiled down everything the Bible had to say about humility and when I got through, I came to some definitions and I've used these for years now. Uh, and the definition of humility is both a vertical and a horizontal element in it. Number one, the vertical definition is to 
openly admit and to openly appropriate, which means take to yourself, your total dependence upon God. So pride says, I'm independent. I can do it myself. I don't need anybody. Total dependence upon God is humility that says, no, God, I need you. I do depend upon you, and I say it openly to everybody. I can't make it without God, okay? That's the first step to humility. The second one, which is even harder sometimes for many people, is it is horizontal, and it's proper interdependence with other people. There is a proper interdependence with others. You can't be totally dependent upon anybody else. Only God can be totally dependent upon. There is a, and there is improper interdependence with other people, which shouldn't be there. When you're trying to get something from someone they can't really give you, or you're trying to get identity from a relationship that can't actually give you that identity, then obviously you're trying to be dependent on them in a way you shouldn't be. But proper interdependence is humility, where I admit I need the body of Christ. I need other believers. I need them to occasionally come to me and say, are you seeing this correctly? Are, do you need help with this issue in your life? And so on. Because they care about me, and that's, we should go because we care, not because we want to condemn others. And, but people don't always understand that in the church, humility is the very characteristic that Jesus most manifested. What was his most obvious characteristic? His total, absolute, utter dependence upon his Father. I always do those things which please my Father. The words I speak, they're not my own. They're exactly what the Father told me to say. Uh, not my will, but your will be done, Father. You know, So that's what Jesus exemplified. Paul drives that home in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, when he talks about you know, that Christ humbled himself and became obedient, even death on a cross. Uh, and therefore, God exalted him in the highest place. Humility always leads to exaltation uh, in the Bible. It's always when you mention one, it mentions the other. So we're just about out of time. I just wanted to ask one more question in really quickly, if we could, to help people understand that this is uh, for the security of believers. Right. <laughs> Can we lose our salvation? Okay, I was going to say, you, I knew, you told me before the broadcast that you were going to bring that one up, and I'm thinking we should be getting to that because we're going to need about, we're going to need some time to talk so, about that one. So that's a good question. So do we need to try to do another uh, one of these discussions? Because I've got a whole list of questions we never got to. And I'm almost certain that based upon some of the things you said today, I'm going to get a flood more. Yeah. Well, I, let me say this. Uh, my answer to that will not fit into any, I mean, per se, into any, it's not going to fit into the Calvinist camp. It's not going to fit into the Wesleyan camp necessarily, but it won't be contrary to either one of them. It's, I really believe it's a biblical answer, and I think it's an important one. And it, in fact, I don't think there could be a much more important question because if indeed, uh, you know, I believe in the security of the believer, but I don't believe in the security of sinners. Uh, and we got to make, and, and that sounds kind of, you know, like I'm being cute, but I'm not. But the point is, is that there really is security for the believer. And the Bible does say, uh, I, I think the Bible makes it clear that real believers don't tend to apostatize. However, we'll have to address this because the Bible does talk about some exceptions. And we have to find out what do those exceptions mean and uh, what's being depicted when it talks about those. Well, with all that being said, I think we have another show that we're going to have to do on just this topic and maybe a couple other really big hitters that I have here. 
because I know I have a couple of questions that are going to take quite a bit of time to unpack. And I'm sure, like I said, we'll probably get a lot more questions based upon today's discussion. Yeah. Well, I, I think talking about the security of the believer is important. We certainly don't believe in the insecurity of the believer, but at the same time, we don't want to create false security either. Right. And I want to make sure that we do that right. So I think we'll just uh, plan on doing another time then. With that being said, I'd very much like to thank you for coming and talking to me today. I think this is an important topic, and I get a lot of questions about it. Well, it it, it couldn't be more important. Salvation, it's the most important thing mm-hmm. going on in the world, the salvation of the world. Jesus Christ came and refused to be turned to the right or to the left. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because he was going to save the world, you know. And so for us, our salvation and the salvation of others should be absolutely central in our thinking. It, it couldn't be anything more important to talk about. And we, sh- we certainly want to get it right. That's right. Well, thank you so much for coming today, Pastor Gary. Yeah, you're welcome. My privilege. So this has been a Veritas Resurgence broadcast. And today on The Voice Calling in the Wilderness, we've been talking about sin and salvation, but we've really started to get into the meat portion of the salvation that God has planned for all of us. So please take a moment and subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at vrbroadcast.org, where you can find more teaching and ask questions of the show and our guests. Also, find us on Facebook at A Voice Calling in the Wilderness. And if you want to hear more messages from Pastor Durham, you can find him at pcnh.church. Do us a favor, recommend the podcast to your friends and family, please. Again, thank you for listening, and have a blessed day. Mm